We are back again, our little latkes, for a part two. <laughs> this time we're celebrating Hanukkah in honor of my fellow Jews out there. What's a latka? You don't know what a latka is? No. It's basically like a, a potato patty. So if you make it really good, you're supposed to shred your own potatoes. You put in like a couple of vegetables, like onions, carrots, and then you fry it up real nice. And oh. then you dip it in either sour cream or applesauce or some other sauce if you're feeling creative. Can you bring that to dinner Saturday night? Sure. Okay. My family was supposed to have a latke fest this year, actually. Ooh. I don't know if that's happening. Sounds good. Anyway. Anywho. (laughs) Back to our session. So this session, we're just going to do board preps. This would be a fun podcast to listen to before or as you're studying for your shelf or maybe you're on a car ride, need a break, whatever. We're just going to go through some um OBGYN and boss questions to help you guys prepare for yourself so this has been a little while for us since we've really done any questions we took step two in June and it is now December um and while we've been on rotations uh we haven't really been doing a lot of uh board questions right so this might be might be a little refresher for us as well so I'm going to set up an AMBOSS um question session so again if you are somebody that uses AMBOSS and doesn't want any spoilers, maybe tune us out. So I will do OBGYN for this shelf. And I will do the difficulty. I'll just do all the difficulty. Or maybe I just will not do the hardest one. I feel like those are just tricky. Tricky and unnecessary. We could have done a game of dreidel with this. Oh. Like, depending on what you roll is the difficulty of your question. That's fun. But then I'd have to make a whole new question session mm, for each Too one. much work for Summer. Too much work for me. Study smarter, not harder. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to start study mode, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So I'll read the first question. Lexi, you can read the next one. All right. <clears throat> Wait, am I doing this question? We're going to you... work, work through it together. Oh, together. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to read it. Teamwork. I'm just reading out loud. Okay, so you have, this is question one, an otherwise healthy 28-year-old prima gravid woman at 35 weeks gestation comes to the physician with a five-day history of epigastric pain and nausea that is worse at night. Two years ago, she was diagnosed with a peptic ulcer and was treated with a proton pump inhibitor and antibiotics. Medications include folic acid and a multivitamin. Her pulse is 90, blood pressure is 130 over 85, pelvic exam shows a uterus consistent with consistent in size with a 35 week gestation lab studies are below so her hemoglobin is 8.6 her platelets are 95,000 her t billy is 1.5 ast is 80 lactate dehydrogenase 705 and for her urine her ph is 6.2 protein 2 plus White blood cells are negative, bacteria is occasional, and nitrates are negative. The question is, which of the following best explains this patient's symptoms? Is it A, inflammation of the bladder, B, bacterial infection of the kidney, C, inflammation of the lower esophageal mucosa, D, stretching of the Gleason capsule, E, acute inflammation of the pancreas, or F, break in gastric mucosal continuity okay so we're looking for the one that best explains her symptoms and her symptoms are epigastric pain right Mm -hmm. nausea worse at night worse at night 
Okay, so epigastric pain and nausea that's worse at night. And then what else stood out to you in this question, Lexi? Some of her labs, so her hemoglobin was low at 8.6, but mm-hmm. that doesn't really catch my eye too much because she's pregnant. Anemia is very common in pregnancy, so not necessarily, you know, the answer mm-hmm. right then and there. And then on labs, the LDH was also pretty high, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 7.05. Right. Right, and then also the platelets are low. It's 95,000. And so even though you're talking about the hemoglobin being low, I think for pregnant women, um, I remember looking this up on one of my weight rotations, but I think anything under 10, you're still kind of concerned about anemia um, or like 10.5 depending on the trimester. But I'd have to look that up and update to know the exact numbers. I think 8.6 is still pretty low. So we have anemia of some sort potentially we have low platelets and the ast um um, the ldh is high so what do we know about the combination of a high ldh with a low hemoglobin so usually that would signify hemolysis okay so we have hemolysis maybe and then our ast is high as well so what are we and there's some protein in the urine Mm -hmm. two plus protein in the urine Um, This is kind of looking like HELP syndrome to me. Yeah, so can you, what's HELP syndrome? Mm -hmm. So you have hemolysis, uh, elevated liver enzymes, low platelets. Perfect. So she has all of these, right? So sounds like that's probably what's going on. Uh, Okay, so of all these answers, which one is HELP syndrome? I believe it's stretching of the Gleason capsule. Yeah. Okay, let's click it. Yep, we're all right. Woo! Okay, should we read the blurb explanation? Okay, so this patient meets all the diagnostic criteria for HELP syndrome. Laboratory evidence of hemolysis, i.e. a low hemoglobin with an elevated LDH, an elevated AST, and low platelets. Most women also have hypertension and proteinuria, although this is not required for the diagnosis of HELP. Abdominal pain due to the stretching of Gleason capsule from hepatic swelling is a common symptom. One feared complication of HELP syndrome is hepatic subcapsular hematoma, which can rupture, resulting in exsanguination. All pregnant patients with HELP therefore require an immediate ultrasound if they develop severe abdominal pain. So that's kind of far. It kind of threw me off with the epigastric pain worst at night. That kind of sounded mm-hmm. like a GERD picture. Yeah. So I didn't really think of HELP presenting that way. So it's good we had all those labs. Um, should we just read the one for um, GERD to make sure we don't why it's not yeah. GERD? Okay. So that one is, so this was the answer choice that was inflammation of the lower esophageal mucosa. So inflammation of the lower esophageal mucosa from GERD-induced esophagitis can manifest in epigastric pain that is worse at night, as seen in this patient. Pregnant patients are at increased risk for GERD due to progesterone-mediated lower esophageal sphincter relaxation and delayed stomach emptying. However, GERD would not explain this patient's hemolytic anemia, elevated AST, and thrombocytopenia would suggest a more serious condition. That's really interesting about the progesterone. I never knew that. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, The progesterone's a fun one. That's also why, isn't there something with like progesterone also, it like relaxes something in the ureters and that's why you're more common to get pilo? I think that's a thing. (laughs) We'll Google it and come back to you, but I'm pretty sure that's a thing if I remember. All right. Are we ready for the next question? Yes. 
So our next question, we have a 36-year-old woman comes to the physician to discuss contraceptive options. She is currently sexually active with one male partner and they have not been using any contraception. She has no significant past medical history and takes no medications. She has smoked one pack of cigarettes daily for 15 years. She is allergic to latex and copper. A urine pregnancy test is negative. Which of the following contraceptive methods is contraindicated in this patient? A is progestin injection, B diaphragm with spermicide, C progestin only pill, D intrauterine device, E condoms, and F combined oral contraceptive pill. I'm going to go with F combined oral contraceptive pill because she is over 35 and she is a smoker. That is correct. Woo! All right. And then what were some of the other options? Let's talk about maybe when some of these other ones would be contraindicated. Okay. All right. So progestin injection. Um, I don't know when that would be contraindicated. What does it say? Let's see. Because DMPA or the depo injection lacks estrogen, it may be used in patients greater than 35 years of age who smoke. So it doesn't really mention one it would be contraindicated. Yeah. Okay. It's just not necessarily contraindicated in this patient. Makes sense. Yeah. The more common contraindications that I've run into is um, heavy menstrual bleeding with a copper IUD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, this question I think is a really common one with um, over 35 and cigarette smoking. So I guess maybe what are the other contraindications to combined oral contraceptive pills? I feel like that comes up a lot. Yeah. We have migraine with aura. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. Um, yes. Any like blood clot, like factor five, things like that. Mm-hmm. Also breastfeeding. Breastfeeding. Okay. What else? I feel like there's more that we're forgetting off the top of our heads. Yeah. I think Does it say in that blurb? Ones. Let's see. I'll just read what it says. Okay. So combined OCPs are contraindicated in women over 35 who smoke due to an increased risk of BTE. Estrogen is associated with coagulopathy because it increases the plasma concentrations of several clotting factors and fibrinogen. Advancing age and smoking also affect blood clotting and circulation. Other absolute contraindications for the use of estrogen OCPs include cardiovascular disease, including CAD, deep vein thrombosis, stroke hypertension, metabolic disorders, um, including insulin-dependent diabetes, estrogen-dependent tumors, uh, lupus and or vasculitis okay All i right. kind of forgot diabetes was the contraindication or insulin dependent diabetes i did too yeah that's a that's a good one to get from that all right so let's move on to the next question next question okay so we have a 22 year old woman comes to the physician to discuss the prescription of an oral contraceptive She has no history of major medical illness and takes no medications. She does not smoke cigarettes. She is sexually active with her boyfriend and has been using condoms for contraception. Physical exam shows no abnormalities. She is prescribed a combined levonorgestrel and ethanol ethanol estradiol tablets. I feel like those words I never say out loud. (laughs) Um, Which of the following is the most important mechanism of action of this drug in the prevention of pregnancy? Okay, so we're asking basically how this works in preventing pregnancy. Okay, is it A, thickening of the cervical mucus, cervical mucus, B, inhibition of the rise of luteinizing hormone, C, suppression of ovarian folliculogenesis, D, increase in sex hormone binding globulin, 
or E, prevention of endometrial proliferation. This is actually kind of a tricky one, the way it's worded. I feel like yeah. I'm kind of between B and E because the way I kind of remember all of this working is that the combination of estrogen and progestin is they kind of feed back on GnRH. GnRH then, if you have less of that, then you get less LH and FSH, right? So you're kind of causing an inhibition of the rise of luteinizing hormone, but I also think that you're preventing endometrial proliferation as well, right? Yeah, I guess maybe the question is which one of these things is going to actually prevent pregnancy more effectively? Okay. Okay. And then what about these other options? I don't think increase in sex hormone binding, that has nothing to do with contraception, no. right? And then suppression of the folliculogenesis, you still get follicles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then thickening of the cervical mucus. No, I think that's more of like an IUD kind of thing, right? Yeah. Also, that happens more just during ovulation in general. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. All right. Should we choose B then? Yeah, I think that's the main mechanism. Okay, let's click it. That is it. All right, so it says the most important mechanism of action of combined oral contraceptions, contraceptives is preventing ovulation. <laughs> I can't read today. Um, in preventing ovulation is the inhibition of the LH surge. Okay, that's true. The LH surge, is, that's a big thing. The estrogen and progestin in combined OCPs provides negative feedback to the hypothalamus, preventing the release of GnRH and subsequently both FSH and LH. This decreased gonadotropin secretion prevents the spike in estrogen released from the graphene follicle necessary to induce the LH surge in the pituitary, which then initiates ovulation. This significantly reduces the possibility of successful fertilization with a less than 1% with perfect use and 9% with typical use. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. That 9% with typical use, that's kind of a scary number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Let's read why it wasn't that other one we were considering. So it is not prevention of endometrial proliferation because... The progestin in combined oral contraceptives acts on the uterus by inhibiting endometrial proliferation, which creates a less suitable environment for the implantation of a fertilized zygote. However, this is considered a minor contraceptive. Okay. All right. So it still does happen. It happens. It just wasn't exactly what the question was asking. I think this is hard. This is where I feel like I miss a lot of questions is just kind of this self-doubt of like, I know this happens, but maybe not what they're asking. Okay. Anything else with that we wanted to ask about this one? No, I actually had kind of the same mindset. I remember in my REI rotation, one of the things that uh, we would talk about is some women have trouble implanting because of that, uh, because they don't have enough um, endometrial thickness. Oh, okay. And so it's interesting for me that that's not really the main mechanism and how the OCPs uh, prevent pregnancy. Okay. Got it. All right. Next question. Mm-hmm. All right. A 36-year-old woman comes to the physician for a two-month history of urinary incontinence and a vaginal mass. She has a history of five full-term normal vaginal deliveries. She gave birth to a healthy newborn two months ago. Since then, she has felt a sensation of vaginal fullness and a firm mass in the lower vagina. She has loss of urine when she coughs, sneezes, or exercises. Pelvic exam shows an irreducible pink globular mass protruding out of the vagina. 
a loss of integrity of which of the following ligaments is most likely involved in this patient's condition. So we have A, infundibular pelvic, B, uterosacral, C, cardinal, D, broad, or E, round. I think it's, hmm, I feel like uterosacral, although I'm kind of having a little bit of a blank on this one. What do you think? I also was going with the uterosacrals because I think those are the ones that can get compromised during mm-hmm. delivery and then you start to um, prolapse. Right, which is, that's exactly what she's having right here is the prolapse. I was kind of expecting a what kind of prolapse question. Yeah. Not the ligament. Okay. Do you want to try see? it? Yeah, let's try it. All right, let's see. Yeah. Woo. All right. The uterosacral ligaments provide mechanical support to the uterus by connecting the cervix to the sacrum and lateral pelvis. These ligaments play a vital role in the prevention of uterine prolapse. The uterosacral ligaments also provide mechanical support to the pelvic floor as a whole and so play a role in the pathogenesis of the broader group of disorders compromised by pelvic organ prolapse. Important risk factors for uterine prolapse include age, high BMI, multiparity, and obstetric conditions resulting from excessive stretching and tearing. Uterosacral ligament suspension is a corrective procedure that involves stitching the uterosacral ligaments to the apex of the vagina, thereby restoring normal support to the top of the vagina. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Do we want to go over... I feel like we weren't really fooled by any of these. These are all very much like... Yeah. Yeah. I feel like one of the things, too, is that I've heard in passing the uterosacral suspensions. Yeah. And or so, the ureal sacroplexy as a yeah. surgery. Yeah. I feel yeah. like that's kind of why we were leading towards that one. All right. Next one. We have a 24-year-old female comes to the physician for evaluation of a delayed menstrual period and intermittent lower abdominal pain for two years. Menarche occurred at age 12, and menses have occurred at regular 28-day intervals. Her last menstrual period was seven days ago, or sorry, seven weeks ago. Two years ago, she was treated for a chlamydia infection. Pelvic exam shows a soft, mildly enlarged uterus. Endometrial biopsy shows decidualization of the endometrium without chronic villi. Further evaluation of this patient is most likely to show which of the following findings. Is it A, benign proliferation of myometrial smooth muscle, B, ectopic endometrial tissue, C, fertilized ovum outside the uterus, D, endometrial infiltration of biplasma cells, E, bacterial infection of the endometrium, or F, empty ovum fertilized by two sperm? Hmm. This is a tricky one. I think maybe let's go back to the beginning and pull out the parts that we think are important. Right. So we have delayed menstrual period. Mm -hmm. So no period in seven weeks. We have lower abdominal pain for two days. That's been intermittent. It's lower. Um, She's 24. She had chlamydia two years ago, but it was treated. Okay. And her uterus is mildly enlarged. The biopsy shows decidualization of the endometrium without chronic villi. Okay. Should we just go through all the answer choices? Yeah. Okay. So benign proliferation proliferation of myometrial smooth muscle that's just a fancy way of saying a fibroid right yes okay so i don't think she's necessarily has a fibroid i think that would present more with like really heavy bleeding not necessarily and you're not going to get delayed period from a fibroid right okay so not that one let's cross it out 
What about ectopic endometrial tissue? That's fancy for endometriosis, right? Yep, and I do not think this is endo as well. You know, you're again, you're not going to get delayed menstrual period, and the pain is not really going to be random for mm-hmm. two days lower abdominal, but more with every menstrual cycle. Right. Worse with the menstrual cycles. It's also worse with like sometimes sex. Worse with um, like bowel movements sometimes. Right. Those are big things to look for in test questions. Also, endo doesn't enlarge your uterus. Oh, interesting. I thought it did. Um, okay, so is it a fertilized ovum outside the uterus? So basically, is this an ectopic pregnancy? I don't know. I'm having trouble ruling that out, honestly, because we have a delayed menstrual period. Uh-huh. We have an enlarged uterus. Right. Um, I think it's possible at this point, but maybe let's go through yeah. the options. I, I don't want to rule it out. You're right, because of the delayed menstrual period and also... Um, Chlamydia puts you at a higher risk for getting tubal ectopic mm-hmm. pregnancies, yep. right? Okay. Um, okay, so let's keep that one in there. What about endometrial inflammation, infiltration by plasma cells? Mm. What what are what are they getting at with that? Is that like a um a snowstorm mass? Oh, okay. Maybe. Like a mole? I'm unsure about that one. E, bacterial infection of the endometrium. I don't think so. This is not presenting like an infectious process. Right. She doesn't have a fever. I mean, they didn't give us vital signs, but usually they would give you vital signs. They give you like a high white blood cell count. Like it just doesn't seem like endometritis. And then empty ovum fertilized by two sperm. That's a mole. That's a mole. I don't think it's a mole. Usually, I don't know. Well, let's think. Well, mole, we'd also have delayed menstrual period. We would have an enlarged uterus. But usually what they say for the mole is like uterus enlarged greater than dates. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I don't know how much that correlates with the history of chlamydia, if there's a reason that they're giving us that. My gut tells me it's an ectopic. All right, let's click it. Yay, we are correct. Wonderful. Okay. So this patient's history of chlamydia infection is a risk factor for ectopic pregnancy, which is characterized by implantation of the fertilized ovum outside the uterus. Ectopic pregnancy should be suspected in patients with amenorrhea, enlarged uterus, and lower abdominal pain, with or without vaginal bleeding. Endometrial biopsy is not performed routinely in suspected ectopic pregnancy, but shows decidualization with no evidence of intrauterine pregnancy. Oh, so they're saying the chronic villi. No chronic villi is the evidence of intrauterine pregnancy. Um, chorionic. What am I saying? Chronic villi. <laughs> um, and ectopic pregnancies have the potential to rupture and cause hemorrhagic shock. So big deal. I'm glad we caught that one early. Mm-hmm. Lexi. All right. All right. And then let's read that one that we were kind of confused about. Option choice D. This was endometrial inflammation by plasma cells. So the reasoning as to why this is wrong is... Endometrial infiltration by plasma cells is characteristic of chronic endometritis. Okay, so that's good to know. Endometritis? Yeah. I was thinking it was a mole. That was really wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Although abdominal pain is a clinical feature of chronic endometritis, it is typically accompanied by intermenstrual or postcoital bleeding, menorrhagia, and a- or amenorrhea. Hmm. This patient's acute symptom onset, as well as biopsy findings, are inconsistent with chronic endometritis. Interesting. Isn't that usually the multiple myeloma finding, the plasma cells? Um, 
Yeah, but not in your endometrium. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but fair, plasma cells do remind me of multiple myeloma. All right. So then bacterial infection of the endometrium. So this is just, is this just acute endometritis? Right. So very similar reasons as to why this answer choice is wrong. Okay. All right. Moving on. Moving on. A 24-year-old woman comes to the physician because of bothersome hair growth on her face and abdomen over the past eight years. She does not take any medications. She is 163 centimeters and 5 feet 4 tall and weighs 85 kilograms or 187 pounds. BMI is 32. Physical exam shows coarse dark hair in the upper lip and periumbilical and periareolar skin. Her external genitalia appear normal. Her serum FSH, LH, and testosterone are within the reference range. A urine pregnancy test is negative. Which of the following is the most appropriate pharmacotherapy at this time? A. Flutamide. B. Luprolide. C. Ketoconazole. D. Combined OCP. Or E. Metformin. All right. So let's pick out the important things here. Mm-hmm. So BMI is 32. Okay, so she's a little overweight. We have coarse dark hair. A little hirsutism. Um, and then importantly too, the serum FSH, LH, and testosterone are normal. Okay, so I was thinking like PCOS initially. Yeah. But wouldn't your testosterone be elevated? Yeah. Okay. All right, so that's a little odd. All right, so maybe let's go through the answer choices here. Okay. So A was flutamide. What do we think of that? I don't know what it is. Okay. Let's click on it. All right. So flutamide may be used in the management of IH. However, it's not first-line therapy in the treatment of hirsutism, but rather a third-line anti-androgen considered only for patients who have been refractory to at least six months of monotherapy with another medication. Spironolactone is considered first-line anti-androgen used in patients with refractory, moderate to severe hirsutism. With finasteride and cyproterone acetate being the first or being the second line antiandrogens. Okay. So basically we've established that this person has idiopathic hirsutism, IH, right? Yeah. Okay. So we were kind of right. We were thinking it sounds like PCOS-y, but it's not. It's just the hirsutism because she has the normal lab values. But okay. So it's not flutamide. What do we think it is? Let's see. The next choice was luprolide. That's um a gnrh agonist usually used in treatment of endometriosis and prostate cancer so i don't think that's the answer here can we just review there's luprolide can be used in two ways right as an agonist and an antagonist which way is which yeah so if you use it continuously then it shuts down um gnrh so then you have less lh less fsh production Mm -hmm. and then if you do it in like spurts or like a one-time use then it temporarily will increase gnrh okay so use intermittently it's an agonist consistently an antagonist yes okay yeah all right all right sounds good all right and then the next option was ketoconazole i don't know how that would help in this situation right she doesn't have a fungal infection yeah Okay, what's the next choice? Then we have combined OCP. What do you think? That seems kind of like an attractive option to me. Um, you know, I think generally with this question, Sam, you'd start to think of PCOS and then usage of OCPs. 
But I think even though this isn't PCOS, the OCPs can be used to regulate uh, some of the hormone levels. And if she has hyperandrogenism to um, bring that down a little bit, what do you think? I mean, I, I, it sounds kind of sound. I'm just thrown off by these normal lab values. So I don't know. What are, what are the next options? Then we have metformin is the last one. Okay. Well, I think that's kind of like a little bit of a distractor because if somebody has PCOS, you usually give metformin because they're at risk for insulin resistance, but she doesn't necessarily have PCOS, so... Yeah, I wouldn't jump in to give metformin. No. At this point. No. So it looks like we're kind of wanting, leaning towards D. All right, let's see. Yep. Combined OCPs are recommended as first-line therapy for women with hirsutism due to their ability to reduce androgen levels. Estrogen, progestin, contraceptives reduced androgen levels by suppression of circulating LH and stimulation of sex hormone binding globulin levels. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Because the SHBG, that's what binds the androgens, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I guess the more you bind them, the less active they are and able to contribute to a hirsutism. Yeah. That's interesting. I yeah. I like that's not... Not a common answer I would know. Interesting. Okay. All right. Next question. All right. We're on question seven. Okay. 20 minutes after delivery of a newborn infant, a 22-year-old woman starts breastfeeding. Initially, the expressed milk is thick and yellowish. Three days later, the mother's breasts swell and the expressed milk becomes thinner and whiter. A decrease in maternal serum concentration of which of the following is most likely responsible for the observed changes in milk production. Is it estrogen, oxytocin, human chorionic gonadotropin, prolactin, thyroxine, or progesterone? Ooh, this is a hard one. Hmm. I know after delivery in general, you your levels of estrogen and progesterone kind of plummet. Yeah. Which makes me think of those, but I don't know if those really have a big effect on your milk production. And then I started thinking of, like, the role of oxytocin and letdown. Yeah. But I don't know if that's responsible for, like, the difference between colostrum and regular breast milk. Right. Like, oxytocin helps with the – right, you're saying the letdown, but it's not doesn't change the consistency as far as I'm aware. Hmm. I wonder if it's, and then prolactin is something that you'd want to see, like, prolactin increases milk production, oxytocin helps with letdown, is that right? Yes. Okay. So, I think your prolactin is still elevated. I think so, too, but, you know, the thing that's throwing me off here is that I know oxytocin continues to rise, because then every time... Like baby breastfeeds, the oxytocin increases, then you get the uterine contractions. Mm-hmm. I really don't know. Let's try. Let's okay. See. Which one do you want to try? Mm, oxytocin. No. Wrong. Oh, we missed our first one. All right. The reason it's wrong is oxytocin stimulates the myoepithelial cells in the breast parenchyma to contract and aids in milk secretion. Oxytocin levels increase during and after delivery and also facilitate uterine contractions. Increased rather than decreased levels of this hormone facilitate milk letdown reflux. Okay, so all of our thoughts were right. We just didn't really answer this question. Um, 
Okay. Oh, the question was a decrease in yeah. which one. All okay, right. that's why maybe we're on a different page. Okay, a decrease in which of these. So I think it's either estrogen or progesterone. Yeah. Okay. Always read your questions, folks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I... Hmm. What do we think? It's got to be one of those, too, because that's why you don't always recommend the combined oral contraceptive pill because it can mess with the milk production, right? I think it's estrogen. It's wrong. It's not estrogen. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's progesterone. It's progesterone. There we go. There we go. Okay, on try three, we got progesterone. So let's learn. Lactogenesis is the process of milk production during pregnancy and is comprised of two stages, secretary initiation, stage one, and secretary secretory activation, stage two. Did you know any of this? I did not know any of this. I've never heard of any of this. Wow, we're learning things today. So secretory initiation, this is stage one, occurs during the second half of pregnancy when high levels of circulating progesterone directly inhibit prolactin-induced milk production. Delivery of the placenta causes a rapid decline in progesterone. This decline triggers the secretion of high levels of prolactin, cortisol, and insulin, which propel the second stage of lactogenesis, secretory activation usually occurs on the second or third day postpartum and is marked by breast swelling and copious milk production okay interesting so you deliver the placenta and then you have a rapid decline in progesterone and then this rapid decline triggers high levels of prolactin cortisol and insulin how does the body know that the placenta was delivered i don't know that's a good question you know like what is it just like the contraction of the uterus or? I don't know. We're going to have That's to That's a good question. We're going to have to research that one and come back to you. How does the body know? All right. Okay, let's read. Let's move on. I think we're done with this one. <laughs> Next question. Next question. All right. So we have a three-year-old girl, Summer's favorite age range, is brought to the physician for a well-child visit. Her father's concerned about the color and strength of her teeth. He says that most of her teeth have had stains since the time that they erupted. She also has a limp when she walks. Exam shows brownish-gray discoloration of the teeth. She has lower limb length discrepancy. Her left knee-to-ankle length is four centimeters shorter than the right. Which of the following drugs is most likely to have been taken by this child's mother when she was pregnant? And then we have A, trimethoprim, B, sulfamethoxazole, C, ciprofloxacin, D, gentamicin, E, chloramphenicol, and F, tetracycline. Okay, so we have the discolorated teeth, the limbs discrepancy, so I would say tetracycline, right? I would agree with you. That's correct. So the explanation says tetracycline crosses the placenta and accumulates in developing teeth and bones because of its tendency to form complexes with calcium salts. In utero, exposure can lead to discoloration of deciduous teeth and inhibition of bone growth as seen in this patient. For this reason, tetracyclines are contraindicated during pregnancy and in children less than three or less than eight years of age. Great. Cool. Good to know. I learned that from Sketchy. I learned that on the floors. Really? Yeah. Lexi doesn't watch videos, so she learns on the fly. All right. Next question, question nine. 
So we have a 30-year-old woman comes to the physician because of a because of progressively worsening breast pain over the past 24 hours while breastfeeding her son. He was born three days ago via uncomplicated cesarean delivery and was feeding well but now struggles to latch to the breast. She reports tearfulness and exhaustion. She has no history of serious illness. Her grandmother passed away from breast cancer at age of 82. The patient's medications include folic acid and a multivitamin. Her temperature is 98.6. Examination shows diffuse tenderness, firmness, and fullness of both breasts. Her nipples are cracked and the areolas are erythematous and swollen bilaterally. There is no palpable axillary lymphadenopathy. There is a dry, mildly tender surgical site wound above her symphysis. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it a breast abscess, a galactoseal, a plugged duct, inflammatory breast cancer, breast engorgement, or lactation mastitis? So... My gut reaction here would be breast engorgement. What about you? I agree. Okay, let's talk about what we would see with each of these. For a breast abscess, I think I'd be looking more for, you know, like a fever, right? Yeah, or just like a palpable mass Mass, in some cases. And there was no mass here. Painful, fluctuant. Yeah. Yeah. And then a galactoseal. I'm having a hard time, like, jumping right to like what the typical question stem is for a galactoseal let's come back to that one um inflammatory breast cancer that's where you would see more of a mass as well and then like in the like axillary lymphadenopathy there's no palpable axillary lymphadenopathy here yeah and that's where you could have the pews orange yeah (laughs) (laughs) the orange peel breast yes um and then lactation mastitis um what would you see there uh, you know, then you would have some inflammation of the breast, but that could be unilateral mm-hmm. in this patient. It was in both breasts. Um, I think you can have a fever as well with lactational mastitis. Yeah, you can have systemic symptoms like fever, chills, malaise. Um, and I think also mastitis usually occurs a little bit later, like two to four weeks after. And this patient's started two days after delivery. Um, so it kind of sounds a little bit more like breast engorgement yeah. to me. What do we think? Let's see. Okay. Breast engorgement is correct. Breast engorgement typically manifests with bilateral, so you were onto something with the bilateral, breast tenderness, firmness, and fullness in the absence of fever. Primary breast engorgement is due to increased milk production postpartum and typically occurs three to five days after delivery, whereas secondary engorgement is caused by insufficient demand for breast milk due to poor latching by the neonate. Typically at a later period point, a later point in the postpartum period. Areola involvement can typically interfere with breastfeeding and may worsen engorgement. Okay. And then treatment consists of frequent breastfeeding with optimal nursing techniques, warm compresses prior to breastfeeding in order to facilitate draining, cold compresses between breastfeeds to decrease milk production, and NSAIDs to reduce breast pain. That's actually very interesting. I spent a day with the lactation consultant on the floors, and I think that was one of her best tips is She said that a lot of patients um, don't really know when to use the warm and cold compresses Mm, because both of them can be helpful. But she said that was a major thing to use the warm compresses uh, either during feeding or right before feeding to get the ducts open and draining. Yeah. And then the cold ones in between to facilitate healing and decrease the inflammation. That's really interesting. I'm glad I kind of learned that today. I think that's important. Yeah. 
And then just for their reading, a breast pump can also be used to drain the milk and reduce tension within the breast. If left untreated, prolonged breast engorgement can lead to mastitis due to milk stasis. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Any others that you want to click on? Oh, we already said we we're going to review Galactoseal. Yes. So Galactoseal is the most common benign breast condition in lactating women. In contrast to this patient's finding, Galactoseal typically manifests as a firm, non-tender mass in the subareolar region. More of a Galactoseal is not bilateral. Okay. Yeah. So I think that was the main thing. It's not bilateral. And I think the keywords you're looking for for Galactoseal are firm, non-tender mass, subareolar. All right. Moving on. Okay, here you go, Lexi. A 30-year-old woman, Gravita 1, Para 0, at 30 weeks gestation, is brought to the emergency department because of progressive upper abdominal pain for the past hour. The patient vomited once on her way to the hospital. She states that she initially had dull stomach pain about six hours ago, but now the pain is located in the upper abdomen and is more severe. There is no personal or family history of serious illness. She is sexually active with her husband. She does not smoke or drink alcohol. Medications include folic acid and a multivitamin. Her temperature is 101.3, pulse is 100, and blood pressure is 130 over 80. Physical exam shows right upper quadrant tenderness. The remainder of the physical exam shows no abnormalities. Lab studies show we have a hemoglobin that is normal, leukocyte count also normal, uh, BUN is within normal limits, creatinine within normal limits, um, that alkphos. Looks pretty normal to me. And then the bilirubin, direct and indirect, are also normal. Mm-hmm. Urinalysis shows mild pyuria. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? We have A, urinary tract infection. B, ovarian torsion. C, HELP syndrome. D, urolithiasis. E, pelvic inflammatory disease. F, acute cholangitis. G, appendicitis. And H, pyelonephritis. Right. Can we review exactly what's happening? Yeah. So we have this woman. She's at 30 weeks pregnant, having upper abdominal pain that is now more severe in the upper abdomen. Um, She has a fever. Right upper quadrant tenderness on exam. And pyuria in the UA. Okay. All right. So, and her hemoglobin looks good. Mm-hmm. So I think we can rule out HELP syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. What else can we rule out? I mean, I don't, the torsion is just not looking like a torsion to me. It's no, not. It's not like intermittent and it's not, it just doesn't seem like it. And the pain is right upper, not lower. And so that would be pretty unusual. Pregnant, which you can probably have an ovarian torsion while pregnant. I just feel like in question stems, that's not necessarily what you're looking for. Um, cholangitis, I'm going to say no because her billy mm-hmm. is fine. Yep. Appendicitis, that actually could be because when you're pregnant, your appendix gets pushed up higher, right? That's true. That's actually a very good point. And the location of the pain now that I think about it isn't really uh, classic for a UTI. Right. And with the UTI, you'd have more like, you know, frequency, um, dysuria, the typical like UTI symptoms. Not saying she doesn't because obviously in pregnant, you can always have to the um, what the unsymptomatic, asymptomatic, asymptomatic UTI. Yeah. But she doesn't have like typical UTI symptoms. So I think also less likely that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then 
let's see. What, what was other? the last choice? The last choice was pilo, which pilo, you would think more flank pain than right upper quadrant pain, right? Yeah, I don't think the location of the pain is. No, so for test purposes, I'm going to rule that one out. Um, and then let's see, what other options? There was pelvic inflammatory disease. This, she's not, like, there's no vaginal discharge. There's no, um, it just doesn't seem like that picture to me. Yeah. And then urolithiasis, that would be more pain that like radiates the groin. Maybe you'd see some like hematuria, right? We're not really seeing that here. Yeah, and more colicky type pain usually. Right. So I think we've kind of ruled out everything except for appendicitis. And I think that's an important one to catch in pregnant women, right? Yeah, I'm pretty confident with it. Let's do it. Perfect. It's right. Okay. So appendicitis, um, this is the answer explanation. Dull pain that gradually worsens and eventually localizes to the right abdomen is characteristic of acute appendicitis. This is the most common cause of acute abdominal pain in pregnancy. Although appendicitis pain classically localizes to the right lower quadrant, McBurney's point, in pregnant patients, the gravid uterus can displace the appendix towards the right upper quadrant or the flank. Oh, that's interesting. Towards the flank as well. So yeah. I feel like that could cause some like confusion between pilo and acute appendicitis. Steropyuria is a common finding in appendicitis and can occur if the part of the urinary tract, usually the right ureter, is within close proximity of the inflamed appendix. Oh. That's good to know. Yeah. Causing ureterogenic, excuse me, causing ureteric irritation and or inflammation. Graded compression abdominal ultrasound is the best initial imaging modality for suspected appendicitis in pregnancy. All right. Good to know. Good to know. That was question 10, right? That was question 10. So I think we can wrap it up. How did we do? We did 9 out of 10. Woo! If only you could take all your exams with your friends. I know, right? Very big help. Well, thank you guys for listening in. We'll be back again soon with our next episode of our podcast. But until then, we'll see you later. Bye!